This is the Misdirected Mark Podcast, a podcast about gaming, game mastering, and entertaining you, our listeners. We are explicit, you have been warned, and I'd like to thank Mike Willer for letting us use his music on our show. Now let's pick up those mics and get on with this thing. And welcome to Misdirected Mark Plays. Tonight we're talking about consequences and damage in your tabletop role-playing games. But first, my name is Jerry. My name is Phil. I'm Chris, and we are Sans Old Man Logan tonight. He is uh, taking care of a family thing. We have no announcements. There's no announcements to make right now. Welcome back. Yeah, welcome back. We're back after, uh, I mean, you heard the last episode of Mr. Ectomark Mark Plays, so there's that, but we will be getting episodes out mostly weekly now to the end of Mr. Ectomark Mark Plays. Weekly-ish. Weekly-ish, yep. With that, Let's do another show on Misdirected Mark Productions. I will talk about Thaco with advantage. So we have Ange and Jared who love talking about RPGs and D&D. Together they share insights into the games they're running in the campaign journal and then tackle a variety of topics that affect the game in the DM's workshop. I mean, they're going to talk anyway, so they might as well record it. Maybe you'll even pick up an ancient D&D factoid about a previous edition of the game that you'll never, ever use. Word. Plus, sometimes their producer comes on. Sometimes I'm there, yeah. I'm actually on the next episode. Well, the previous episode when you hear this, because it, it came out before this. We talked about 2023 and the trash fire that it was, and also some of the fun stuff that came out of it. Workshop, workshop, welcome to the workshop. We're going to talk about consequences and damage. They're different, but they're kind of the same. We're going to find out how. We're going to find out why they're different, why they're the same. We're going to do it all tonight here in the workshop. Don't suck. Don't suck. So the question that we're going to explore in this workshop and it's kind of a garage, too. Is it more interesting to give someone a trait in our Cortex game or assess them stress? This discussion is going to be expanded to any game that has the option to give narrative consequences or primarily mechanical damage. To start this whole thing off, we should probably do some definitions. So, Definition Panda, hit me! Behold! You are in the presence of Definition Panda. All right, let's do it. Let's talk about some definitions. Consequence. The dictionary defines consequence as a result or effect of an action or condition. In RPGs, we make that into a descriptive term that describes an effect on a character. This effect can be either narrative, mechanical, or both. Hint, it's best when it's both. Oh, I feel like that's an opinion, but I'm with you. I agree with you, (laughs) but I feel like that's an opinion. (laughs) That is editorial. That is not fact, but it is best when it's both. For example, let's use um, one that a lot of people are familiar with from 5e, exhaustion. Narratively, you're tired. And the more levels of exhaustion you have, narratively, the more tired you should be. And ideally, you should be playing that out as your character. Mechanically, for each level of exhaustion you have, you are at minus one to any d20 check. That is with the... Maybe modified rules for the 2024 edition of Dungeons and Dragons, everybody. Okay. Well, there we go. The old, the old exhaustion rules are terrible because they're destructively bad for you. But yeah, that sounds much, that sounds much better. Yeah. 10 levels is. of exhaustion, cumulative minus one per level. I think so. I think it's a better rule. Okay. So you can see that like, if we just had the narrative, right? Exhaustion would just mean you're tired, right? And that's kind of like how we see sometimes tags in um, uh, like Apocalypse World and other um, powered by the apocalypse games. And then you could just have it mechanically where you're, you're not really required to act it out at all. And, you know, just when you pick up the die, you've got your minus one. Now on to damage. Damage did, the dictionary defines as physical harm caused to something in such a way 
to impair its value, usefulness, or normal function. In role-playing games, damage is most often a numeric value that is applied against a numeric pool of points representing the character's overall health. Damage is an attrition mechanic that wears away the health until it runs out, at which point the system defines what happens to the character. So when you run out of hit points, make a death save, right? Like, that's the thing. Like, when you take damage, subtract it from your hit points. When your hit points run out, this is what happens. And different games will treat all of that differently, as in how much, how much damage capacity, i.e. hit points you can have, how much weapons do, and what happens when they run out, or what happens when they pass below certain levels, um, i.e. bloodied, which is actually a condition, right? True. Bloodied is a condition that is triggered by the attrition of damage. Yes. Okay, cool. Um, and then, like I said, there are um, different games that love to play with this. 4E being one of them. The original Cyberpunk uh, had numeric damage, but you then translated it into wound levels. Did the Star Wars Saga do that, or one of those one of those Star Wars games do that too? Oh, it's possible. My Star Wars, my Star Wars RPG knowledge is not great. I was never a huge Star Wars RPG guy. Currently, the MCDM role playing game also has the bloody condition. I think the bloody condition. I think it's fantastic. My homebrew fifth edition game has the bloody condition. Yeah, it's great for a whole bunch of reasons, but it also is just, you know, it's, it's a nice marker of you are halfway through their hit points. Yeah, yeah. Take, you take a knee and cough some blood, right? Yes. That's what Bob does because he couldn't figure out any other way to describe bloody. So you just take a knee and cough some blood. When we were running many, many years ago, when we were playing 4E, it was Bob's go-to when something would become bloodied. And so we would all just kind of preempt him. He'd be like, uh, they take a knee, we'd be like, and coughs up some blood, right? And then, you know, he'd just roll through the bloodied effects on us. Okay, so those are our two definitions for tonight, consequence versus damage. And like you said, they kind of, this gets into some mechanical stuff as well, because damage is a mechanism that actually umbrellas a whole bunch of things. Damage capacity, how much damage things do, and the effects of when you run out of your damage capacity or at different levels of your damage capacity. Agreed. Let's move on to the discussion points. So we're going to talk about a bunch of things surrounding this concept. We have some questions. We'll answer them. We'll probably wander off into the woods at points in time because we do that because that's what makes this show so much fun. So first thing, what does a consequence as a trait do in our Children of the Shroud game? Jerry, you've been super quiet, so I'll ask you first. What do you think? I think it adds some um, better narrative and role-playing effect. And I hate to use the term role-playing, but it gives you something else to act upon in the game besides just, okay, I took some damage. The fact that there are things on the table that can either help us or hinder us, it's a game representation of what's actually happening. And I think it makes it a little bit more cinematic. I think so. I, I think it helps with the storytelling a lot, yeah. actually. For instance, Bob's character, Gunny, with his easy money is easy that's a consequence mm -hmm. as a trait. And it has played a lot into the game as far as how Bob behaves and the choices that he is making. It's really done a great job of, of pushing him to make a lot of interesting player and character choices in the game. Uh, there was one moment that people can hear where Phil was like, I'm going to take this one that you rolled, Bob, and I'm going to bump up this easy money because it feels so good. And then Bob instantly was like, I'm going to spend this point because... In my mind, while I'm having that debate with myself, I don't think, I don't want stuff. I'm not about this. I'm about taking care of my mom and getting the money for that and making a better life for myself, which 
still easy money is easy, but he took it down because the, the, the narrative that was occurring that was going to drive that one to push it up was not in line with what his character, he thought his character should be leaning on, which then leads to the idea that plot points are really important in that game because without them, you can't do stuff like that. So I think that's a, a fascinating example of how a consequence is a trait affects our uh, our storytelling and our children of the Shroud game that we play. I like how some of the consequences end up being things that can be spun by the players into something that's an advantage at different times, depending on what's going on in the game. Sometimes the consequence you're under can affect your willpower or your your drive or whatever if they're played properly, narratively, as a storytelling technique. They're, they're normally a negative consequence initially, but good role-playing can make it into something, or good storytelling can make it into something that the players can use to progress their story, but also get a numerical effect occasionally. As an example, let's lean back on Gunny. He's got a consequence trait that is, my mom completely trusts me, which he used positively for himself, but it also has a pretty negative connotation because he's lying to his mother and there's like guilt that's associated with that. So either way, that trait can be used in a variety of situations. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that double-edged thing from Fate with, uh, with Aspects. It translates right into the Children of the Shroud game. Our relationships work the same way. They do, yes. Relationships aren't consequences, though. They're specifically there as things that we can lean on and also pieces of the game for Phil to then utilize to make our lives either better or more miserable or at least create story beats within that and scenes and such. I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole nother topic, Phil, the whole idea of how you've leveraged relationships to make interesting scenes for us to play through. Sure. I think going back to consequences, I think one of the things I like about consequences is that they're sticky, right? Like they stick around and they inform like, like what is surrounding that character, right? Like if I just assigned stress for Bob casting the money ritual right if i was just like oh this is you know this is putting stress on you because you know you're technically breaking the law and all of that thing like it's there and stress has a way of going away and things like that but it's not prominent for bob right but when i put easy money's easy and slide that card in front of him it's there it informs you it informs him because this is an AP, it informs the listener, like, what is on Gunny's mind. And even when he's not thinking of it, it's still there. Mm -hmm. That's what I really like about Consequences. I like them because they even remind me during play to go lean back on them. Yes, absolutely. Let's move on to what stress does then. We mentioned it a little bit, like how uh, stress can go away and it, it recedes. Now... There are a bunch of ways that you can handle that in Cortex Prime. For instance, if you want, you can have your house rule be, or your, your rule for your game be that when a scene is over, like a, a scene that would cause stress, your stress just goes away. Like you just mm -hmm. re regain it. There's also some rules in there where like stress steps down by one die every scene until it is gone. We have arcane shielding and then uh, our stress track, our physical mental stress track is one track. That, that's how it works. Our arcane shielding is a shield that, that simulates the, our magical power that protects us. When that breaks, that means things are getting more serious because we are starting to get actually injured at that point. Which technically, if Phil was going to say that you take mental stress to something, that could just bypass our arcane shielding at a time. Oh, 100%. The physical and mental stress, though, to me, what it does for us is that it creates tension. As soon as we start taking stress and stress starts going up, there is the threat of us getting taken out. And when we get taken out, we have no control over what's going on there. 
Now, a consequence getting pushed up and taken out, pushed up over a d12 takes us out too, but we can attack consequences. Feels like they're sticky. They are sticky because they don't just go away a lot of the time. We have to do something to deal with them. There is no real way to get rid of stress in our Children of the Shroud game. We don't really have a healer. Like, there's nobody to attack that, that stress with, with healing powers, as far as we know. Oh, I think there's one person in your class that has healing abilities, if I remember correctly. There is one person, but we're not, like, very tight with them, so... Yeah, no, no, you're not. Correct. For all intents and purposes, we don't have anything to, to deal with the fact that we are taking stress. So when I have a D12 stress, like, I'm one step away from being taken out, and I have zero control over that. I can't reduce that. Yeah. And I think that is what really delineates the difference between consequences, which they're cool because they are narrative and they can take us out and they have this, this uh, level of uh, emotional attachment and storytelling attachment to them. Whereas stress is just, we're screwed if it goes all the way over the top. Yeah, and I think from a combat perspective, since our setting has um, swashbuckling and since our rules have you know sword fights and stuff, I think the other thing is, if every time you had to take stress, we had to name it and put it on the table, it's a lot. And you would have to name it in a way that, you know, on the next turn, narratively, it makes sense that I could hit it again to raise it up. And, like, there's a lot going on there when it's easier to just say, like, you lost that round, take a D8 of stress, right? And do exactly what you said, which is raise tension. And those are the two big differing factors, I think, between those things. And I also think the Arcane Shield is great because without it, it would be possible to one-shot someone. Yeah, totally. But the Arcane Shield actually, it makes it two-shot. Especially in our version of the game because we can build some pretty large dice pools. Yes. That, I mean, I think that's the other really good part of having the Arcane Shield is basically to say, like, look, no one's getting taken out in one turn. That's why it's there. It extends fights and also you can't get one-shot. That is, that is the whole reason for it. That's why I put it in the game. That's why I, I suggested it. Aside from the fact that it feels like anime. Oh, yeah. Which, again, a lot of what we're trying to do here is, you know, we mashed up these genres to emulate something. And without a doubt, anime is a huge influence, which is hysterical because I'm not super knowledgeable. I just, you know, have seen some movies. <laughs> You're much more knowledgeable at it than I am. Like, I literally have just seen some movies and I'm just kind of winging it at this point. Thousands upon thousands of episodes of, of shonen anime I've watched. That's what I'm saying, right? And I've like I've seen a few movies. And I'm not exaggerating when I say thousands. No, no. I've seen I've seen the things you've watched. I'm like in uh, we're on like episode like 987 of One Piece. So Oof. and we've watched all of Naruto and Dragon Ball. So there you go. Just those three right there. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on to this next question. We've already talked about it a little bit, but how does a trait consequence differ from stress and how the characters react to them? Jerry how does T react differently from traits and stress, in your opinion? Like, what do you do with that? Uh, stress tends to be something that is very, it's, it's, a, it's a single description generally that doesn't get played off of as much, where once traits are put on the table, there's something that we play off of round to round to round. The stress is still there, but we don't tend to um, hang on it every turn. Like, okay, I've got D8 stress. Well, it's going to be something that's going to give fill a numerical number to play with, a D8 against me. But it's not something that we're going to keep talking about, where I think the traits get used and manipulated, and the story tends to work around them more often. It's something we can just work with, and it's something you can sometimes use to your advantage again. Stress is almost, I, I don't know of any way to use stress to our advantage, where a trait can be used and shifted in such a way to make it something that's fun to play off of. The thing that we're really bad at is using the stress of our enemies 
in our dipoles because we're allowed to do that just for free. Yeah. We always forget. I sometimes do a better job of remembering than you guys do. Like, I will remember your stress and just slide it into my dipole. But yeah, we're not always super on that. I will say this. I use stress as a barometer of how long is this character going to stick in this fight? You know, when you guys fought uh, Kurt, like you guys went back and forth and he hadn't accumulated any stress at the beginning. So like, could he have run? Yes. But did he perceive you as a threat? No, he hadn't taken any stress yet. Samia, I think, took one or two hits and then was like, I'm going to change my tactic to run, right? And, and stay out of this fight. So yeah, for me, one, when the arcane shield gets popped, the stakes raise for the NPCs, right? Now the NPCs are like, okay, it is conceivable I could get taken out of here. And on top of that, um, not all NPCs, in fact, almost none of the NPCs you've encountered actually have a D12 stress. They often have less, less stress. So once the shield's gone, that's an indication to me about, do I think I have this fight? Do I think I can get away? What is the emotional stakes for this character? Like, are they going to stay and fight to the end or are they going to bolt? That kind of thing. That is how I use it as a GM, because I'm not feeling the stress of it like you guys are with your character, but I try to emulate the stress of the NPC by looking at what my current stress is for my NPCs. As a uh, character, when my arcane shield gets popped, the stakes have raised, and I'm like, oh, I better do something drastic, otherwise I'm in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And that's when I start doing things like creating a bunch of ice to lock somebody down to give somebody else a D12, hence that fight with uh, Jenna at the asylum. Because I knew I was in trouble. I'm like, I better help out and I better make sure that my, uh, at least my companions can do something before I am done, which I was taken out in that fight, actually. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. Which situations create spaces for these different kind of negative effects to be meaningful? I mean, we, we've talked about it a little bit, but we can, we can dive deeper into that. Stress versus consequence. Being taken out by a trait, the GM has only the narrative positioning of the trait to do something to the character. Stress, they have a lot more leeway to do whatever they want. And to me, man, that unknown is a lot scarier because there's no way to constrain as a player what, what could happen there. I can't fight back against it. I can just deal with what's going on. Now, there's some narrative fictional like situation going on there where, where uh, whatever happened that took me out is the thing that you know will probably happen. But if Phil has an idea and it has nothing to do with that, but like has something to do with what's going on in the background or whatnot, he could just pull that out whenever he felt like it. Any game master could. That's the thing about getting taken out by stress. And like I mentioned before, that stress thing, it's not something we can attack or get rid of. Right. So, you know, it's, it's actually stickier than a trait, if you ask me. What it is, is more pervasive. I don't need a lot of context to pull on your stress. I need your involved. I'll take that stress die, which is dangerous for you, as opposed to like easy money's easy. Well, uh, that only works if somehow money or temptation is involved for Gunny. Otherwise, it doesn't apply to situations. Let me throw an example at you, what I'm, what I'm talking about when I say, like, you have options, right? Sure. So we're fighting Jen in the asylum. She's got all the shadow magic at her disposal. You take me out Yep. When in that fight, she could pull me into a shadow dimension, I'm just gone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that is a thing that could have happened. Mm-hmm. I could also be killed. Oh, yeah. That's not a stakes that, you know, we've used a lot in our game, but absolutely. I don't think... Easy money is easy. Going over D12 is going to kill Gunny. Kill him? No. Get him taken away probably by the 
The shroud, yes, sure, yeah, but that's still potentially a lost character. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a it's a very different way, and it's a potentially a character that could come back later. Just mind wiped, mind wiped, some sort of therapy, something like that. Yeah. So like that's what I'm talking about. Like there are like you could do anything compared to being sort of funneled in based on the thing as a game master. That's usually where I'm at with that kind of stuff. Which I like, and this is why I like consequences because when the stakes aren't life or death or being permanently taken out or whatever, being able to slap a consequence onto something is like a nice way in a non-combat situation to be like, yeah, you did this thing and it didn't work the way you wanted to and boom, there, like, here's a consequence for it. Now go do some narrative shit to go get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Where stress is more like when we start using stress in a scene, that scene takes on a different flavor it does and it makes those different kinds of scenes more meaningful in different ways which i think is the neat thing about the having both of them one is one is like of feels like a desperate situation one is is more often it doesn't have to be because you can have physical physical consequences that are traits we tend to have a lot more mental consequences that are traits in our in our games but they they can exist we did the thing where we had her off balance jenna off balance we could have knocked her up to over a d12 we could have taken her out with that Oh yeah, you almost did. We almost did. It's a, it's a little harder because of the, how the ones go back and forth. Yeah. And how many plot points people have. But those two things create that, that different meaningful points of play. And I th- think it's harder to have a mechanic that just does the one thing. And what I mean is I might have a game that has a blade of hit points. All a blade of hit points do for me is when I run out of a blade of hit points, I'm dead. Or I'm unconscious, right? Whatever the rules say, yeah. Whatever the rules say. Maybe they could, it could be something like when you run out of a blade of hit points, you take a negative tag, and, when you've ta- and then you get to like restore some of those ablative hit points, and when you've taken too many negative tags, you're just dead. Sure. But that doesn't get to the, uh, I mean, it depends on the game, kind of game that you're playing, right? Like, I mean, we're playing a game that is about high school swashbuckling, dramatic, magical stuff. So having that, those, those mental traits matters in our game. They should be there. But if I'm playing a dungeon crawl, I don't know that the negative traits need to be so prominent or they should probably be assigned in a different way, right? Claustrophobic or terrified or things like that. More, more standardized tags. It's kind of like the stuff that they have. Like, I mean, a lot of Power by the Box games have stuff like that, right? Like you, when you take a consequence, you take like an emotional, emotional damage in some way, shape, or form. Masks does that stuff. We're, we're drifting now into the last question that we'll get to in a second. But... I just wonder, that's why I'm bringing this up, the game style that we are playing, if we change the game style, how would that change how we go about with the, uh, the consequences and, and the, the damage? Like, where are we going to put them then? Like, how do we design around that? What is the, what is the ideology? How do we think about it? I just asked a huge question. No, I, I think you're right. I think that for sure, high school has flavored a lot of the stakes in the game. It's swashbuckling, of course means that we're going to have to have some violence. But high school is, you know, by default, a genre that the stakes are a bit lower, they're a bit less deadly. So I tend to, and I don't think this was conscious, like now that you're talking about it, I'm kind of seeing it in reverse, but I tend to lean towards consequences, especially for high school stuff. And then when we get into swashbuckly stuff, then, you know, we head towards stress. And I think that has a lot to do with the type of game we're playing. And then going back to what you were saying, for your dungeon crawl game, a blade of hit points, yes, but 
I guess it also depends on what your um, dungeon crawl game is really about. If your dungeon crawl game is like, how far can you go into this dungeon before you die? A blade of hit points is probably great. Sure. But if it's about managing your survival, then things like fever, sick, disoriented, those things could be really interesting to have to play out and manage and try to get rid of. If your dungeon crawl game is not strictly just plowing through monsters, but is like, how long can you stay in this alien environment before you can't take it anymore? Yep. Your fear level. Oh yeah. Fear level would be a good one. Yeah. What happens when you get taken out with your fear level too, right? Like how does that affect the other people? Around? I mean, I'm riffing off of darkest dungeon now. Because sure. That's kind sure. of where that, that sits. I think Cortex could do some of that. I think you could play something like Darkest Dungeon with Cortex. While Cortex is not my favorite game, it is, it is a really good game. Like, I like it quite a bit. Yeah, man, like, you could do some very interesting things with some standardized traits and conditions, like the fear level rising as you're, as you're proceeding through. Like, it's one that you could just hit on all the time. And what does that mean? And then you can start putting, like, extra tags on top of that. Oh, I could, I could tell you mechanics where I would do, for instance... Um, your fear level plays against you for initiative. It could play against you for attacks, but you could potentially spend a plot point to reverse it and be like, no, I'm scared shitless. Um, I just throw myself, you know, sword first at this thing to try to destroy it as opposed to, oh yeah, you know, playing it safe. There's some interesting spaces you could play in with that kind of idea. Yeah, especially if you start exploring different kinds of fear, like fear of the dark, what if you're afraid of the other people in your party at that point in time? Like these fears then get like these like sub tags to them. Yeah. What if you have to make movement checks in a narrow corridor and you're carrying claustrophobia? Oh, yeah. Or if you're or you take you have mistrust for somebody on there. Sure. Now you can't assist them. Yeah. Right. Like you, you, you've lost that that uh, that avenue of play. So that would be an interesting thing that we never did in Cortex, but it would be an interesting mod for Cortex is canned consequences that have um, their own either rules or, or SFX, like whatever, however you want to call it, attached to them. Like that one, like mistrust, like, oh, um, like your mistrust is a, let's say it's a D6, right? So you can't contribute anything over a D10 in terms, like you only mistrust this person a little, so you can't give it your all to help them. But at, at mistrust D12, you won't give anything to help this person. Right. You could make those little rule packs and just on a one, assign them out. You just play around with the rules, be like, cool, well, you, have mis you have mistrust D6. Uh, you want to help somebody? Roll D12. If you roll a six or less, you can't help them this round. Yeah. Right? Like, there's, like, I know that's not a Cortex standard rule, but you could put that in yeah, there. You right? really it put it works in just there. fine inside of the game. That starts to make for some really interesting things. It also makes it sometimes easier on GMs. Sometimes when you are playing a longer game and you have to keep assigning out consequence after consequence, sometimes you get like a little burnout on consequences. Mm -hmm. I tend to just farm it to you guys. You guys are always really good about coming up with your own consequences. But having some canned ones would be a really nice way to be able to say like, oh, I'm going to do this thing to you in the game. And it's got some very genre and game specific meaning to it. It really does. That's the power of this toolkit for Cortex is you can do that stuff. Oh, let me raise my hand for a second. I don't think this will, hopefully this won't spoil anything for Jerry. I'll purposely not name the mystery. But for a while, my character carried a consequence called your next. Yeah, yeah. And that consequence had a very strong 
narrative component to it. It really did. Now that we're talking about that, that's from public access. Let's talk about other games that have damage and consequence within them and how do they function and how that might affect their gameplay. Jerry, you want to talk about Dragon uh, Bane. So tell me about Dragon Bane. Okay, in Dragon Bane, you have something called uh, conditions. Each of the six primary stats, which if you've played any D20 game, you're familiar with those stats, um, has a condition assigned to it as well. Um, you can trigger those conditions a number of different ways. When you get a condition, anything affiliated with that stat has a bane, which is the equivalent of a disadvantage in D&D. And so strength is exhausted. And so if you're exhausted, every time you use your strength for anything, you have to roll two dice, take the worst roll. You can get those from that effect of a monster. You can get those from the effect of something going on in the game. You can also assign them to yourself by pushing a die. If you fail on a roll, you can push a die and, and then narrate to the GM why you now have a condition because you pushed that skill. Then if you just describe it properly, then the GM lets you put that condition on. And until you get that condition cleared, that's that. But it allows the GM to very quickly apply things like uh, scared. If a character is scared, you know, you see a monster, you see a ghost, whatever, you fail your willpower check, now you're scared. That's just the condition. It makes it a simple but effective thing that happens in the game. And there are ways to clear them up a number of different ways. It takes things from just, oh, you just took more damage to you've got something else happening in the game. Actually, one of the, one of the conditions you can get as the mallards, the duck people, is you can have berserker rage, which means that now your character has angry as one of the conditions. And until you clear that, you now take a, a penalty on anything to do with any intelligence checks. It just, it's a simple condition, but it's something I thought was a neat effect to quickly put conditions into a game and make them work. Let me ask a couple of questions now. So it's cool. I, I like it. Let's, let's fit it inside of how this game actually functions. So this is a D20 game. You roll and you roll under? Yeah, roll under. So getting disadvantage where you roll t two D20s you have to roll under is terrible because you take the higher of the two rolls and that's essentially the equivalent of like a plus four or plus five or something like that to your roll, which is, is bad. Mm -hmm. How do you clear these conditions? Whenever you take the equivalent of a short rest, you can clear a condition. Okay. There are certain things you can do in the game. People have like a memento or something. So if you spend extra time with your memento or role play, you can clear conditions. There are ways for other characters to help you clear conditions, depending on what the condition is. You know, if you're angry, they can calm you down, that sort of thing. There are spells that can do it. There's a number of different ways to, to clear conditions. The mechanical one is just a short rest. You can clear a condition. The rest of them are role-playing things that players can do to help you clear those conditions as well. So it leads into storytelling again. Is a short rest 10 minutes or an hour or what? I believe it's five, but you only get one per, per day. It's a short time. There's a bunch of different things you can do during a, they call it a shift, but you can, there's a bunch of different things you can do during that time period. And one of them is clear conditions. All right. That's cool. In the game then, when you push a die roll, if, do you automatically get the condition if you push? Yes. Succeed or fail, you, you have that condition. This is essentially like a, a devil's bargain or like you push, you get a thing. Yep. You can do this so many times per your, your stuff, and, you, and then you have these things on you, and then you can get rid of them via magic, you can get rid of them via some sort of interaction with the party, and the solid mechanical ways you can get rid of them via uh, uh, this, this shift, which you can only have one per adventuring day, essentially. I believe so. That creates a very interesting choice in, in how these things work. I think that's pretty fascinating. I brought this up, Phil, because, you know me, I, I want to see how all these things work together in concert, because just saying this is a condition, this is how it works, doesn't mean much without the context of how the mechanics work around it. Exactly. Now, with the mechanics surrounding it, we can see that it is very difficult in a lot of ways to get rid of these conditions. So taking one is kind of a thing. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you don't have a ton of ways to to remove them unless you have a bunch of magic at your disposal. Which makes pushing a, a real cons- like you really got to think through if you're going to push or not. Yeah, you don't just push willy nilly. You do it when you need to. Exactly when it's going to count. And you've only got six stats. You can only push six times because once you've got a condition, you can't get it again. Right. So if you're angry, you can't just make yourself more angry. Now you have to, it, just like in masks, you have to describe. Okay, well now I'm. I'm exhausted or now I'm dazed and there might be no way to, if you're down to just sickly and there's no way to say I'm sickly, you just can't push that die roll. Sure. Of course, then you have to take into account how much magic you have at your disposal to heal so that people can push again and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting. That's a, it's becomes part of the resource management of the game, I would imagine. Yeah. That sounds like a cool conditional situation for how that, that affects gameplay. I also like the fact that as a GM, it allows things like monsters can just have an effect that is everybody make a save. And if they don't, then they have condition X. If you encounter like a mummy and it touches you, you make your save or now you're sickly. Sure. That makes sense. It doesn't just, it isn't just a straight damage effect. It's something different. Which is awful because disadvantage is awful in those kind of games. Yes, it is. Tell me about fusion fantasy games. Phil kind of touched them before. It's a similar to the cyberpunk thing, which is where you had a numerical effect that had wound levels affected to it. So depending on how you ran fusion, and fusion was a, was a toolbox similar to Cortex. So if you had a body of six, each of your wound stats was a six. So if you took six points of damage, you were grazed. If you took six more points of damage, you were now a light wound, which might be a minus one and it's so on. It was, it was a numerical thing that, that stacked penalties up to you. So you weren't necessarily taken out just because you took some health. You just got uh, additional penalties put on your dice rolls. And when you're rolling a 1d10, a minus 5 is pretty, tough, is pretty tough. There is a limit to how many of these wound boxes you have, depending on which game engine you were playing with. But Phil covered most of it with the cyberpunk thing. But I just thought it was, it was fun because it wasn't just, I've got 20 hit points. It's, I've got every six hit points I take, I get another minus one penalty. The first one is a flesh wound. It doesn't do anything. But after that, you start taking those minuses. And those minuses stack up real quick. The game gets more tense after that. If I remember correctly, right, in the old cyberpunk, your body stat also determines, like, you cross your body stat with damage to find out your wound levels. Mm -hmm. And then wound levels escalate. If you take a medium wound, you get another medium wound. Now you have a heavy wound. That kind of thing. It was neat in that effect because um, you didn't have to sit and track hit points. You did roll dice for damage, which could be pretty satisfying, especially in that game where, you know, you spent money to buy cool stuff so you know rolling dice for damage and getting a big number was nice because it would you know put you at you know one of the higher wound levels or just you know kill you out completely uh paranoia not i can't remember which versions i'm pretty sure first and second edition and then then my knowledge gets a bit flaky but i'm pretty sure paranoia did the exact same thing with the last um one being vaporized (laughs) yep characterized by the smoking boot the game that always got me where I was like, oh my God, taking, taking a consequence, basically taking harm was like the worst thing ever was Blades in the Dark or the, the commensurate games that go along with Forge in the Dark games. Because man, like you take one harm, which there's ways to reduce it, right? Like you could just be like, no, nah, I'm not taking this by making that stress roll, which sometimes I would rather just get taken out by stress than take the harm. Let me tell you, man, because... If you take a one harm thing, you have reduced effect and having reduced effect in in a forge in the dark game is awful. Mm -hmm. And that's the first level of that. The second level is minus one D one die. And you know, you got to roll and hopefully you have like a four five or a six just to succeed. And really you want that six, right? Mm -hmm. And you only got like four of these slots, two for the one, two for the two harm. 
And then it's, you get a shattered, then your three harm is like, you need help. And if you don't get yeah. help, you're probably going to die. And if you get a fourth one or you get a four harm hit, you're just, you're just dead, just dead. So like, I always thought that was interesting because it also had a, uh, a narrative comp component to it. These were tags. These, these things like drained or battered or shattered right leg. Drained or battered are things like one harm. Shattered right leg was a three harm. I'm, I'm looking at the, the page right now for, for consequences of harm on Blades in the Dark. Really, really painful, but good consequence system, I think, for that game. Like how it pushed that very gritty kind of play. For something a little more lighthearted and, uh, and more uh, comic booky, I always like the mask ones too. They're very much in the vein of Dragon Bane, but much more comic booky kid interaction going with that high school thing because you want drama. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the, the overarching thing that we're talking about here is your consequences and your damage in your game will very much color the flavor of how your game plays. And you should take a really good look at these to see how they flavor your game because that'll tell you a lot about the tone and feel. So how about games like some of the, some of the old games where you did have consequences, but they were generally the result of critical hits. Iron Crown Enterprises merp with those ridiculous critical hit tables, <laughs> but also Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay that when you got to zero health, you weren't dead. You started rolling on the consequence table. And depending on just how far below your wounds you went, it was everything from, you know, broken leg to you just got one of your eyes knocked out to somebody's wearing your spine as a belt. This is tone, right? Like, this is about the tone of your role-playing game. That's what those charts do. But they also had actual, like, mechanical and narrative consequences, because if you survived the battle, they, they kept with you. Yeah, but even that mechanical part was just tone. It, it like, you're, you're debilitated, and there's no way to, on, most of the time, there's no way to fix that stuff. Like, you're just screwed. So, let me note two games that have consequences in the modern age. Uh, Cyberpunk Red, mm -hmm. if you roll uh, your damage dice, and if two of them or more come up with sixes on the damage dice, you also do a critical uh, wound. Now, theirs, they have, when you roll, the critical that you take has two components. It has a component that is what happens immediately to you in combat. And then there's a second component of like, after combat, you got to do something about this. You can, for instance, I think this happened to Jerry a couple of sessions ago, took shrapnel to the spine. Yeah. Oof. In the middle of combat, Glenn's character was able to come and render aid. So that stopped the short term effect. But after that combat, Jerry still had to go under, un, under the knife for surgery before that condition clears. And I think in one of our first combats, uh, Jim lost an arm. Yes. Somebody shot his arm off, like <laughs> just blew his arm clean off. And we didn't have a medic at that point in the game. So Jim's like running around minus one arm trying to fight this fight. Mm -hmm. The other game I'll mention that has critical hits, which I think is going to be a mess to deal with, is Twilight 2000. <laughs> yes. You can in Twilight 2000 when you get shot and you don't have a ton of hit points in that game, when you get shot, you can also take a critical because each weapon has a critical threshold. So above a certain number of successes, that hit also does a crit. Let me talk about cyberpunk for a second, Red. Sure. Mm -hmm. So it's cyberpunk. Yes. If I lose an arm, there is recourse for me to go get another arm. There is and isn't because if you don't want an enhanced arm, Right. Like you don't want an arm that you can punch through a door with or bend steel with. You can pay like far less for one of those. Like you can just you can go to the doctor and they'll put one of those on or they'll um, clone you up, you know, a missing arm. 
But if you lose an arm and you're like, you know what, fuck it, I lost my arm, why don't you chrome me up and put something serious on, then you're going to pay a bit more money and you're going to take a hit to your humanity for getting something powerful, you know, to replace your arm. There's recourse to get a new arm. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's many, like, there's multiple avenues of recourse. And it creates a, it creates a choice point, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If I'm playing a game where it's like the Black Company, which is a low fantasy, gritty game. Yeah, I know the Black Company. And I, and I lose an arm. I have, like, zero recourse to get an arm. Yes, you've, you've now lost an arm. <laughs> I'm living with that or I'm rolling a new character. Your character gets a new nickname. That's my point. When we talk about like critical hit tables and, and like losing limbs and things like that, it's all about the setting and the tone and the rest of the mechanics surrounding that and the choices that come with that. Like the cyberpunk one's interesting because you can clone an arm, you can do this, that, or that other thing, or you can go get something serious and take a hit to your humanity, which is a choice point. In something like the Black Company, I don't have a choice. In something like Dungeons and Dragons, if I've lost a, or something with high fantasy magic, I can go get it regrown. It might cost me some money, but... High fantasy magic, which is the equivalent of also um, sci-fi. Yeah. Yeah. So if your critical hit chart is basically, I'm losing limbs left and right or, or dying, like outright, then that just informs the tone of your game. And then you have to look at the rest of your setting to see how it interacts with the critical hit chart. That's, that's where I'm sitting on that, I think. Mm-hmm. And like, I, I would hope that it's purposely designed... Although I wonder how much those guys back then and, and, and girls and <laughs> folks thought about that when they were designing those things. Anything that's like 30 years old, I'm just holding in suspect at this point in time as I a historical artifact because I don't know what their intent was for their design. And it's really hard to figure it out because it was the wild west of game design back yeah, then. Yeah, I, I will tell you that like, for instance, for Twilight 2000, those um, critical injuries, like they're a problem because... There's no advanced medicine in that game. And you better hope that your medic doesn't take the critical hit. I mean, I assume we just roll new characters at that point, right? Like, well, that's somebody dead, so we just have a new character that we just bring into the game. They have ways to heal them, and you can make a medic in the game. Like, you can make a combat surgeon and stuff like that. But each one of these, as I'm looking at them, this game has location, so there is a different critical, whether you get hit in the head or an arm, and then... There are effects for each different crit. I haven't read anything about Twilight 2000 yet, so I have so many questions. If we're going to talk about consequences and how they affect the game, like, if that is how consequences can affect the game, what's the game actually about? It's about is it about the location that we're defending? Is it about traveling across this place and, oh. and, like, telling a story about war? Is it about, like, fording up and trying to, like, create a new society? What they tell you the game is about is survival. Okay. And then what you choose to do while you're surviving is like some of the other things that you said. That means if death is on the table, though, that means there should be some uh, recourse for players to then be able to pretty seamlessly integrate other characters into the game. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think you can play this game without already kind of figuring out as a table, like if somebody doesn't make it out of a fight the next story, a new character, you know, joins up, you find somebody wandering around, something like that. Which means a campaign then isn't necessarily about a particular group of characters. It's about these, this group of people as a whole and how they exist in this space. I would find it pretty tough to play a campaign where the original four or five characters finish the campaign. It might be that over time, those four or five characters all get kind of taken out and the rest of the group kind of, you know, proceeds forward 
that's what I'm talking about when I'm when I say take a look at your consequences and your and your damage and how it affects the tone and flow and and storytelling of your game because if you can understand that then you can plan around it. Yeah, 100% I I think if we you know to play this game 100% we're going to have to have a thing that says like in the next story if your character dies or later in that story you can show up. And they do tell you like when you start the game it's like look you can play all American military but that's not required. You can play literally anyone. You can have defected from the Russians. You could be from another NATO group. You could be from Poland. Like if you're playing the Polish um, setting, it doesn't matter. Everything has broken down. Now it's just a matter of like, how do you survive? Well, I think that wraps up our conversation about consequences versus damage. I thought this was really fun, especially when we started getting into other games because it gave a nice contrast to how our Children of the Shroud stuff works, which we're pretty chonky Cortex Prime characters. Like, those characters don't die. They're not no. intended to. That's not the point of the game. And then you can see how in other games, those points may uh, change, depending on what you're looking for. Go play some Shadow Dark. You'll see how fast you can die. Mm -hmm. Hey, Phil, how do you remove stress? How do I remove stress? Yeah. Well, um, sometimes they go to the Temple of Vig Master. Yeah, the Vig Master Temple is my favorite temple. <laughs> there you. we go. Yeah. That's Every right. day's arm day. Every day's arm day. Thank you for listening to Misdirected Mark Plays. Now let's do some Patreon shoutouts before we get out of here. Let's start with the Royal Court. The Polish Ogre, who's our very own Polish Ogre. Lars Henrik Evjan, the Lord Out of Time. Jim, the Royal Merchant Emeritus. Chromatic Chameleon, the Queen's Spy Mistress. JT Evans, the Queen's Librarian. Schmitty, the Keeper of the Labyrinth. Andrew Dacey, the Warden of Whiskies, John Carney, the Court Necromancer, Craig, the Lord of One Name, Tiberius Starcrash Smith, the Baron of Britannia, Eric Bontz, the Weregator, Kevin Lovecraft, the Royal Beard. Now we have some other patrons who are about to get their shout out. John, Chris Constantine, Miko Froelich, Eric Simon, Athelus, Not That Billy Mitchell, Fiona, Kathleen Halperin, Christopher Gamelk, Michael Beck Esperum, Joseph Knoll, Carlos Heptilemma, Michael Draper, Alice Kira, Jim Fitzpatrick, Brentley Harris, Steve Radabaugh, Rory McLeod, Ninjabi, Richard Wyatt, Joseph Peralta, Brian Kurtz, My Brett, not My Brett, but somebody's Brett, Chris Steele, Jared Rasher, The Deliverator, He Belongs to an Elite Order, a Hallowed Subcategory, Bridget, Kubanu, Eileen Barnes, and Brandon Barnes. Thank you so much for being our patrons. If you'd like more content like this, you can check it out at misdirectedmark.com. If you are interested in supporting this show and other shows on Misdirected Mark Productions, you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com MMP. You can get a whole bunch of stuff there, including extra bonus podcast episodes, material concerning this game, The Children of the Shroud. That includes character sheets, our game rules, some of our setting stuff, and Phil's thoughts from behind the screen. If that's not your thing, you can check out a bunch of other podcasts on misdirectedmark.com. There's Pandas Talking Games with Phil and Sunda. They talk about a whole bunch of games, so it's like card talk for your role-playing game. You can go check out the Gnomecast, where a bunch of gnomes get together to try to avoid being thrown into the stew by giving quality game mastering advice. Or you can listen to Thaco with Advantage, where Ange and Jared talk about D&D. They're going to talk about it anyway, so they might as well record it. Thank you for joining us. This has been a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Mic drop, we out.